My name's John Redmond from First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas, and I want to thank you for joining us today on Peace by Believing. And on today's program, we're going to be thinking about the fact that Jesus Christ is in the transformation business. Now, we know that Jesus is in the saving business. He came to this world to save those of us who were lost and who had sinned, and that includes everybody because we've all sinned, and without Christ, we're all lost. But in addition to saving our souls and taking us to heaven when we die, Jesus is in the business of changing our lives. And I don't know what that does to you, but that encourages me as I look at things in my life that need to be changed. And sometimes an attitude or whatever it might be, I think, God, I wish you would change that about me. And God's in the business of changing people's lives. And so today, as we listen to this sermon, I hope that God will speak to you about some area in your life that needs to be changed. Maybe what needs to be changed in you is some sin that you commit over and over and over. Or maybe it's an attitude, or maybe it is a fear or doubt or guilt or something in your life. And you just think, if this part of my life were different, my life would be so much better. What I'm saying to you is Jesus can change that about you because he is in the transformation business. If you'll open your Bibles today to the Gospel of John, we're continuing our study through this great book, and we come today to chapter number two, and we're studying the first miracle that Jesus ever performed when he turned the water into wine. Now, I have to be honest with you, when I knew that it was going to be my turn to preach today, and this was going to be my passage, and it was breaking free weekend, so we have a lot of students here today, I thought, I'm not sure how good of an idea it is to preach to students about Jesus turning the water into the wine. Because they may go home and say, hey, mom, dad, the preacher said that Jesus turned water into wine so we can go out and drink wine. No, I'm saying Jesus turned water into wine, but I'm not saying you ought to go out and drink wine. Keep in mind that in Bible times, it was a little bit different than it is today. Wine was necessary back then because the water was not purified like it is today. They didn't have Ozarka or any of these, those plants back then, the bottled water. And so they would put wine into the water to purify the water. And then the water was used to dilute the wine. And so the wine that people drank in Bible times was a lot weaker than the wine people drink today. It wasn't as strong. That water had greatly diluted it. And so I think a lot of people read this passage in the Scriptures, and they think, well, hey, Jesus turned water into wine, and that means we should just all go out and drink wine, and it's no big deal. Well, it's different in the day in which we live. I heard about one preacher who was preaching in his church, and he said, you know, some of y'all need to pray for Jesus to turn the wine back into water because it's getting you guys in trouble. And so we have to – I know that it is true – and I have a whole sermon on this that I've preached twice on what the Bible says about alcohol. It is true that the Bible doesn't condemn all drinking. It certainly condemns drunkenness. But I just believe in the day in which we live that we have to be very careful when it comes to alcohol. And I, my advice to you, and if you go a different way, that's between you and the Lord. And it's none of my business at that, at that point. But 
My advice is just stay away from that stuff because you never know if you might be the one that's going to get hooked. You might like the taste and then that might turn into an addiction and you might get in all kinds of trouble. But all of that to say the purpose of this story and the reason this miracle is in the Bible is not to endorse the drinking of alcohol. That's not the purpose of this. The purpose of this is to teach a greater lesson and the lesson is this. Jesus Christ is in the transformation business. If you believe that, say amen. Now in this story, he changed the water into the wine. He changed that which was ordinary into something that was extraordinary. He changed something that was blah into something that had great taste. He changed something that was flat into something that sparkled. And so Jesus is in the transformation business. And as we think about this story, this miracle, and how it applies to our life, that's the point I hope to drive home today. Just like Jesus transformed this water into wine, Jesus can transform your life, things about your life that that he wants to change, things about your life that you want to be changed. Maybe you're struggling with a sin, maybe you're struggling with an attitude, maybe you're uh, paralyzed by some fear or anxiety or a spirit of restlessness or worry about. God wants to change all of that about you. And this story tells us that Jesus is in the transformation business. Now, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is the record of what happened at a wedding in a little village called Cana of Galilee. This was very close to the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel, not far from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, not far from Capernaum, where Jesus headquartered his ministry for those three years. Cana is a small little village, and A wedding took place there on a particular day, and Jesus had been invited. His mom had been invited. His disciples had been invited. We don't know who got married. Maybe it was somebody who was related to Jesus. We we don't know. It was certainly a friend at the very least, if not a relative. And so they all went to this wedding, and the wedding took place. And then after the wedding, they had the reception. And at the reception, they ran out of wine. Now, Back during Bible times, this would have been considered a real embarrassment. It was a bad reflection on the groom because the groom and his family were responsible for the reception. And so if you run out of food, you run out of something to drink, makes it look like you can't take care of this girl that you've just married. It kind of makes you look bad. And so this is what happened on that day. And so Mary, when she saw the situation, she went to Jesus And she said, Jesus, they're out of wine. And she was saying to him, can't you do something? Now, the reason most theologians believe that Mary wanted Jesus to do a miracle is because up to this point in his life, he had not performed any miracles. This is his first miracle. He's 30 years old, never performed a miracle. Now, keep in mind, Mary, all these years, has been telling people, I was a virgin when Jesus was born. His conception was miraculous. Some of the people believe that. Other people question that. And so in the eyes of many, she always had this stigma over her. Was she really pure when she gave birth to Jesus? I mean, how, we, don't, we, don't, we know what she's saying. We know this thing about the angel, but we don't believe that, that she was really pure when, when that happened. And so Mary, in her mind, thought, if Jesus would just do a miracle... If Jesus would just show himself to be the Messiah, then they would know that he is the Son of God, and they would know that my account is actually true, that Joseph and I had not had relations, that that which was conceived in me was of the Holy Spirit. And so there are many theologians who believe that was the reason Mary wanted Jesus to do something. 
Not just because she was thirsty or she wanted something to drink. She wanted her name to be cleared. She wanted it to be obvious to others that what she had said and what uh, she had lived all these years was true. But Jesus basically said back to his mom, and I'm paraphrasing what Jesus said. He basically said to her, it's not time for me to show myself to the whole world as the Messiah. It's not time for me to reveal that. One day that will be clear and and people can know it. But for now, that's still a little bit of a secret. And I'm not wanting to just get that out and announce that to the world just yet. But what Jesus did do was to address the problem of all, all these people and nothing good to drink. And so Jesus identified six water pots that were close by and These were water pots that the Jewish people would use to purify themselves if they had broken one of the, you know, one of the religious or ceremonial laws. If they had touched a dead body or if they had done something that was against the law, they would have to go and wash themselves. It was was ritualistic. The water itself didn't cleanse them, but it was ritualistic. And so they had these six water pots that were used for things like that. And Jesus said to the servants or to the, the waiters who were working this reception, he said, fill those water pots with water. And they did. And each of these water pots would hold between 20 and 30 gallons of water. So you're talking about between 120 and 180 gallons of water there that they filled up into the brim, it says. These water pots were filled. And then Jesus said to them, now, if you'll dip some out, if you'll ladle some of that water out, you're going to find something special. And they did. When they ladled that water out and they began to drink it, it was indeed wine. Jesus had performed a miracle. He had turned water into wine, and the people drank. In fact, the the master of ceremonies at this feast said to Jesus, you have done an amazing thing, said to uh, to the gathering there. He said, most people serve the good wine first, and then after everybody's had a little bit, and And some people have had too much, and maybe they get a little uh, intoxicated. Then they bring out the cheaper wine, because by that point, nobody can tell what they're drinking anyway. And so what he said to Jesus, what he said, this is amazing. You have saved the best for last. You saved the best for last. And that would be a good sermon all by itself if I wanted to preach on that, how the devil always offers us the best first. The devil says, if you'll do this, you'll be happy, and then it's all downhill from there. And Jesus says, no, wait. If you'll deny yourself and follow me, you're going to find that your life may start out a little bit hard, but it's going to get better as it goes. That's why the old song says, every day with Jesus is what? Sweeter than the day before. It gets better and better. See, you follow the devil, your life gets worse and worse. You follow Jesus, your life gets better and better. Why? Because he's in the transformation business, and he always saves the best for last. Now, you're asking today, okay, John, I get the story. I see what happened there, but what does this have to do with me, Jesus turning this water into wine? Well, let me give you a couple of things just to jot down today. I think it's simple, but I hope it'll be encouraging to you. First of all, just write this down. The first lesson I see in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus transforms people. Jesus transforms people. Just like He transformed that water into wine, He transforms you and He transforms me. May not be overnight, may not be immediate. In fact, it's not. It's a process into making us the people that He wants us to be. But Jesus is in the business of changing people's lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, the Bible says, If any man is in Christ, he is a, do you know the next two words? 
new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so when Jesus comes into our life, we used to sing the song, what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. When Jesus comes into our heart, He begins to remodel things. He begins to change us. He begins to make us the people that He wants us to be. What I'm trying to make, the point I'm trying to make is that Jesus brings life Anytime Jesus is around, he's taking things that are dead. He's taking things that are hopeless. He's thinking, taking things in people that others have cast aside and thrown away and attributed no value to them. And Jesus is, what, what is he doing? He's giving life to those people. He's giving hope to the hopeless. He's giving gladness to the sadness. He's giving gain to those who have had loss. He's giving peace to those who've been miserable and restless. He's changing everything about us, and he changed it from the inside out. And so this miracle... The first miracle that Jesus performed, turning the water into the wine, is, is symbolic of the fact that Jesus takes ordinary things and makes them extraordinary. Do you remember the first miracle that Moses performed back in the book of Exodus? Moses turned water into blood. Moses, I mean, that was pretty bad, right? You've got water where there's life, and then it becomes blood. Jesus took water, and he turned it into wine. Moses came as the lawgiver, Jesus came as the grace giver. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't turn water into blood. He turns water into wine and into life. And that's who Jesus is. You know, when you're around somebody who's saved, it should be true of all of us who are saved, but it's probably not. But when you're with somebody who's saved and spirit-filled, I mean, they're just they love God, and they're just fresh, and they're filled with the Spirit. You can tell that. You just know you're in the presence of somebody whose life has been changed by God. I spoke at a funeral last week, and after the service was over, it was here at our church, and we were going to go to the cemetery for the graveside service, and I was going to ride with the funeral director out there, kind of the guy that works for the funeral home. And, and I've known this man for many years, but I've never, I don't, I've never actually ridden with him or really even ever had a very long conversation with him. And Got in the car, and we were about to, we were just kind of talking. And I just knew this guy was, it was an interesting guy. I kind of wanted to get to know more about him. And I said to him, I said, uh, I said, let me ask you, how old are you? And he said, well, John, I'm not going to tell you how old I am. I said, well, why not? And he said, well, if I tell you how old I am, he said, I'm so old. If, I, if you knew how old I was, you wouldn't ride with me to the cemetery. You'd be scared. I'm going to happen to me on the road. I said, no, you seem sharp. I said, I'm going to just take my chances with you today. How old are you? He said, I'm 88 years old, 88. And he said, uh, you know, I just love my job. He said, I retired from NASA, had a great career out there. And he said, but when I, he said, I, he said, I'm against idleness. That was the best thing I got from my conversation with him the other day. He said, I'm opposed to idleness of any kind. He said, I think we ought to work. I think we ought to stay active. I said, how do you keep your mind so engaged? He said, I do crossword puzzles, and I'm thinking about ordering the Chronicle. I need my mind to get more engaged. But he, he tell me all these things he does so that he can stay sharp. And, and I said, do you, I said, let me ask, you know, when somebody, I'm 48, he's 88, and so I'm wanting to always learn. I said, how about your diet? Do you eat pretty healthy? He said, yeah, I eat whatever I want to eat. I said, what'd you have for breakfast? And uh, he said, I had a sausage and biscuit. What'd you have? I said, I had oatmeal. I thought, man. I'm going to feed my oatmeal to the birds and go to the sausage. And these old folks are eating everything they want to eat. I said, do you eat the yolk of an egg? Oh, absolutely. It's the best part of the egg. All these things he's telling me. He said, you know, John, I've never had a headache in my life. 88 years old. I thought, I've had a headache since November. 
I mean, this weather change is killing me. I'm like, you know, you, hey, you get when your head, you kind of get a little light, you know. I thought, I've had it for three months. This guy's never had a headache. I need to learn something from him. We're going out there, and he's telling me more about his. I said, do you exercise? He said, oh, yeah, three or four times a week. I go to the park down in Clear Lake where my wife and I live. And he said, I walk about two or three miles. He said, I put my headphones on. I listen to some music. like talking to a college-age student. I mean, it's amazing. We come back to the church, and I had quizzed him with a bunch of more questions. Before we got back, he's going to drop me off. And right before I got out of the car, I said, sir, let me ask you a question. Because I felt pretty comfortable with him at this point. I said, are you saved? Are you a Christian? He said, you better believe I'm saved. He said, it was on April the 5th, 1980, when I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life, and he changed everything about me. And I got out of that car, and I thought, you know, it's not the sausage and biscuit. It's not the crossword puzzle. It's not the exercise. It's not, I mean, I'm not saying those things aren't important. But the thing that impressed me most about that man was the fact that Jesus Christ had truly changed his life. He and his wife go to some great Methodist church down in Clear Lake, but he's been changed by Jesus Christ. And so I tell that story to say, when Jesus has changed you, he changed you. I mean, this man had physical energy. He had a zest for life that most people at 88 don't have. I mean, I just hope when I'm 88 that I'm driving to the cemetery and coming back from the cemetery. I mean... (laughs) I mean, most people at 88, that's a one-way trip out there, but he had to come back. And so, I'm telling you, Jesus transforms people's life. Now, not only does Jesus transform our lives, Jesus transforms how we view disappointments. He changes how we view disappointments. Now, as I said, they ran out of wine at this reception. That was a disappointment. That was an embarrassment. That was a bad thing to happen. And yet Jesus changed how that whole thing was viewed. In other words, what, when, when Jesus got finished with this, he said, Phil, put, put the water in the water pots, and, and I'm going to do what only I can do. You do what you can do. I'll do what only I can do. And so he changes our view of disappointment. Now, notice what I did not say. I did not say that after we get saved, Jesus makes it where we never get disappointed again. I wish I could give that invitation. Hey, everybody today who wants to never have another disappointment in your life, if you'll come give your heart to Jesus and receive him as your Lord and Savior, you will never be disappointed again. Your heart will never be broken again. You'll never have trouble or problems again. The whole church, everybody would come down for that. But what did Jesus say when he was talking to those followers back in the first century? Jesus said, he who comes after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so he doesn't take disappointments away from us, but what he does, he changes how we view our disappointments. Somehow Jesus gives us the ability to view disappointments as his appointments. We spell disappointments with a D, disappointments. But from God's perspective, if we believe he's truly sovereign, we have to say, wait a second, this disappointment is really his appointment. This is something he has allowed into my life. It's a divine appointment. And through this situation that I'm going through, I believe that God is going to do something great in my life. Now, the problem we have, and I've been preaching a lot about this on Wednesday nights in our study of spiritual warfare, the devil who tries everything he can to knock our legs out from under us and take us down and how God wants to make us strong and make us stand. When you have a disappointment in your life, the devil will come to you Remember, the devil is an angel of light, and so he makes himself sound like God. He's the liar, but he makes himself sound like the truth teller. 
And he will begin to whisper things in your ear and in your mind to make you think that your situation is so hopeless and so bad, and there's not anything good can come from this, that if you listen to the devil long enough, he'll get you to believing that. He'll get you to believing that your situation is so bad, God can't even fix it. Your problem's been with you so long, it ain't never going to change. He'll get you to thinking that you can't do anything. He will paralyze you with fear. I've been preaching a lot about fear lately on Wednesday nights. Why? Because I think fear is one of the things that the devil uses to prevent us from moving forward. The devil will tell you, you can't do this. You can't do it. The devil tells me that so often. I'm in settings and situations. Some of the things are simple things that wouldn't be hard for you or me normally. And the devil will get in my mind and the devil will say, you can't do this, John. You're not going to be able to do this. Now, here's the deal about the devil. When he comes at us with those lies that sometimes seem so true because maybe we feel like we can't do it or maybe we think, I don't, I don't feel strong enough today to do what I need to do. The devil never announces his presence. The devil never says, may I have your attention, this is the devil speaking, and I'm about to tell you a lie. I just want you to know before I tell it, it is a lie. I am the devil, and this is a lie. It's not true, but if you believe it, you're going to get all messed up in life. You can't do it. The devil doesn't do that. The devil just says, well, you don't feel strong today. You don't, your mind doesn't feel alert today. This problem you're facing, God, that, that is a bad deal that you're up against. You, I, I just don't think today you, you can do that. And you, and you think, well, you know, I, I don't feel my best. I, this situation I'm going through is kind of painful. I'm not sure if I can do this or not. And so the devil many times paralyzes us with fear. And so what we have to decide is when the devil does that, are we going to listen to his lies? Or we Just take that illustration. The devil says you can't. And you get thinking about that. Man, I can't. I can't confront this problem. I can't go to my job today. I can't do what I need to do. I can't do this. You know, I can't, I, I, I can't fly in a plane. I can't drive over a bridge. I, I can't, I, I, I just, I don't think I can. I just can't, I can't do it. Okay, you keep listening to that. You won't be flying. You won't be going over a bridge. You won't be singing a solo. And you won't be doing much of anything. But see, when the devil says you can't, what does God say in Philippians 4, 13? What did Paul say? I, what? Can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we have a choice we make. The devil says you can't. God says I can. We have to decide, are we going to go with how I feel and what the devil says? Or are we going to go with what God says regardless of how I feel? And if we go with God, we'll be better every single time. What I'm saying to you is disappointments are really his appointments. Because nothing ever comes into the life of a child of God that was not either sent to us by God or at the very least allowed through his fingers. Now, God doesn't cause cancer. God doesn't cause divorce. God doesn't cause people to lose their jobs for no good. God doesn't cause those things. God, God is against those things. But sometimes in life, we go through things like this, and each one of those things has been allowed to sift through God's fingers. He allows us to go through what we go through, and God says to us, if you'll respond properly, if you'll trust me in this, this disappointment is going to turn into a divine appointment, and one day you'll see that I took the worst imaginable thing in your life, and I did some of the greatest things I could have possibly have done. 
Well, we're going to have to stop right there for today, but it's probably a pretty good place to stop because that sentence, disappointments are his appointments, is so applicable and so helpful, at least it is to me, to think that no matter what we might be facing in life, it's actually because of God's sovereignty that we're facing that. He's either sent that into our lives or at the very least, he has allowed us to face it. And so for you today, whatever you might be going through, view it as though it came to you from God. It is his appointment. And through that disappointment, that human disappointment that you're facing now, God wants to uh, transform that into a divine appointment, into his appointment, and do something great in your life. And so look at it differently. Look at it from God's perspective. It may be that God has allowed you to face what you're facing right now so that you would receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe God's used an illness or the loss of a job or a financial setback or some other problem to get your attention, to cause you to think about life and death and eternity. And if you've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart, why don't you do that right now, just say, Lord, I need to be saved. Please come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. I trust you, Jesus. Welcome to my heart. In your name I pray. Amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, God heard it. He's answered it. He saved you, and he has transformed that disappointment into his appointment. Be blessed, and have a great week.